You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. Hey, I'm Johnny. Should I just stand somewhere else, Will? What do you think? Okay. I'm Johnny. I use he, him pronouns. I want to offer a message that I hope encourages you. But I'd like somebody to begin. We're going to start with a passage of Scripture. Now look. There's a lot of verses up there. Okay? But I'm not in charge of the lectionary. So this is what we're doing with the greater body, okay? But someone, you know, it's not that many. Someone can do it. Who's, oh, Will's going to do it. Donovan, I'll, I'll give it to him. In the future, Donovan will pass this around. He's supposed to pass it to you, but I will. You read it from up there, Will? Sure. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor, and our less respectable members are treated with greater respect whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then deeds of power, then gifts of healing, forms of assistance, forms of leadership, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But strive for the greater gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Thank you, Will. Let's pray. So join me in prayer. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Penman, for reading that. Will teaches at Princeton. Rhetoric, right? So there's some giftedness here at doing that. Just like Paul has some 
rhetorical skill. So does Will. As a pastor, I've experienced this over and over again. Whenever we start talking about taking a firm stance on an issue, whether it's related to LGBTQIA inclusion in the church and dignity, anti-racism, or any otherwise siding with the oppressed, we hear about divisiveness. Have you heard this before? In my own church, in this church here, when we've engaged in anti-racist work, I hear echoes of it. Even when we were assembling people of color together to hear our voices as one and listen to one another, some people named that as divisive. You know, when we advocated for LGBTQIA inclusion, again, and those who were concerned for their rights, they were named as divisive. Too often warnings against division cover for people's prejudice. When they mean to say they disagree, they disagree with the solidarity of BIPOC, black indigenous people of color, and LGBTQIA folks. And they don't disagree because it's divisive necessarily. They may just be unconscious of their prejudice or indifferent to it. For oppressed people, too often we have to make a choice between the unity of the church and our own dignity as if those things are mutually exclusive. We have to choose between the unity of our own body and the supposed unity of the greater body. And I'm, I'm starting with this little preamble because we're looking at the text that Will just led, read to us, and I, I want to talk about how, it's, how it can be misused before I talk about how we can use it. The Bible writers do take division seriously. And we can see that in the opening, in the opening uh, chapter to Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, the first Corinthians one, as it were. He says this. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of the Lord Jesus, that you all be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same purpose. Paul's making it clear that unity in mission and purpose and focus for the church is paramount and that there should not be Divided, and Paul will go on and say specifically by their fidelity to different uh, leaders. You know, we're all following Jesus together. We have fidelity or loyalty to Jesus and his mission. Sometimes the church can weaponize this teaching anytime that progress or change is mentioned. Churches claim the integrity of the institution is at risk if we take a side with the oppressed. We often hear this. If there's going to be a change, the um, integrity of the institution is at risk. Like Joe Manchin tells us, the integrity of the Senate is at risk should we get rid of the uh, filibuster rule. I can talk about this for a long time. I'm going to just keep going with what I've prepared. But that wasn't here. That came out of nowhere. So... Um, he says it was, it'd be divisive if we got rid of the rule. And this happens regularly, and I'll give you a few more examples. And, and, and this rhetoric that, that dignity for oppressed people causes division makes unity fall on the backs of oppressed people more, on the backs of the marginalized whose demand for dignity can be seen as fundamentally hurting an institution. 
But if the integrity of the institution is at stake when we side with the oppressed, perhaps it doesn't have any integrity at all. What I mean to say is, if being faithful to God's call to side with the oppressed is divisive or changes the integrity of the institution or the country or the church, perhaps division is what we need. And I want, I want to keep this in mind. It isn't just Christians that do this. I already mentioned the senator from West Virginia. It isn't just Christians that weaponize division to inhibit dignity for the marginalized. I haven't mentioned his name in a while, but he's kind of in the news again. And a figure that's familiar to many of us did so in a speech he gave in South Dakota, sorry if that's offensive to you, in South Dakota on July 4th, okay? He was talking about how the United States was being attacked by the opposition party. And here's what he said. The radical ideology attacking our country advances under the banner of social justice, but in truth, it would demolish both justice and society. It would transfer justice into an instrument of division, there's that word again, and vengeance, and it would turn our free and inclusive society into a place of repression, domination, and exclusion. Trump is arguing that social justice brings division and, in fact, brings injustice, similar to how some Christians do today. And I don't want to go into a big thing about the former president and likely 2024 Republican nominee. Sorry about that, but that's how it looks. But that's the truth. I just want to demonstrate the, that the rhetoric that pits justice against unity and it's how it's commonplace for churches, but also for Christians, but also for people who aren't Christian or aren't particularly Christian, let's say. And I think it's essential to talk about how this call for unity burdens minorities specifically because I think that Paul in Corinthians here has a call for unity that is rather distinct from how it is being weaponized. Unity does not need to be pit against justice and dignity for oppressed people. On the contrary, unity comes when we bring dignity to the oppressed. So I want to give you as a basic reminder the uh, basic problem of Corinth. The colony has been established for a hundred years under Rome. Paul departed from Rome and set up the colony for some conflict. The church is basically made up of house churches like ours, cells. They have like 150 people. We don't know the exact number. It could even be smaller. But nevertheless, it was mainly a, it was a little church made up of uh, poor people and some rich families, and it's entering into some conflicts. There's factions in the church. There's divisions in the church. And one of the reasons there is such Factions is because they're diverse. They live in a city. Their cell leaders um, are like leaders like ours, and some of them are getting notoriety because they're wealthy and they have special spiritual gifts, and others are being ignored. And dissension and division are happening because of that disunity. So issues abound, right? Sexual immorality, legal disputes, issues with the Lord's Supper, people getting drunk at the love feast. Um, the wealthy taking food from the rich, controversies at the resurrection, lots of, lots of issues like that, eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Paul's trying to get them back on track. And he begins the letter by saying, some of you don't like me, that you don't follow me, but that's not the point. We're following Jesus here. The second half of 
12 here. 1 Corinthians 12 is what we're working with today. This is before he gets to his famous love chapter, which you've heard of uh, weddings and things like that for some reason. Um, Paul's chapter on marriage is 7 in 1 Corinthians, not 13. But sometimes we take the, the love that holds us together as a body and kind of, it's fine if it's at your wedding. I'm not saying it shouldn't, whatever, I'm done with that. It's fine. I think I've done many, many weddings with that. Some of you in the room probably. So I'll stop offending you and keep going. He begins by emphasizing that the various gifts that the Corinthians have do not elevate them above others because they are given for one purpose. That's the first part of 12. One cause, one mission, one spirit, same Lord, same God, same, same spirit gives this gift. The divisions in the church in Corinth disrupt this, though. And there's, there's a variety of factions that scholars have thought about happening in Corinth that we read from the text. One of them is like very, uh, very spiritual people that think they're above the law. We call them libertines. They can do what they want because they're so holy. And they're opposed to ascetics, people who feel like they have to live a very tempered lifestyle. There's Gnostics opposed to non-Gnostic Christians, the form of believing in a sort of disembodied faith with mysterious knowledge that they secretly hold. There's Jews opposed to Gentiles, followers of Apollos versus followers of Paul. But the most significant fault line in the Corinthian church, the most significant fault line in the Corinthian church is higher status Christians on one side and lower status Christians on the other. Paul calls them weak. Weak means the poor in Corinth, and the strong are the rich. That's where the main tension is in Corinth. And it's connected, of course, to this other, the people that happen to be very spiritual, so to speak, people who speak in tongues without an interpreter, they're also the rich. That's an interesting cultural dynamic, because right now in the United States, people that are interested in ecstatic gifts are often poor. So like, but in Corinth... You had special power, and you were wealthy as a result. And so that's the group that held that. Okay, It's kind of switched now in how, um, where the money is in churches, right? Like mainline churches have money and not a lot of speaking in tongues as far as I know. Right? I don't think that happens much. So it's different now, but that's how it was then. The rich on one side, the poor on the other. The strong on one side, the poor on the other. There's a significant division there. And as true as it ever was, there's nothing rich folks love more than going downtown and slumming it with the poor. This dichotomy is essential to understanding the division in the body. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul begins by saying the body has many members. And he says this, really interesting, just like our body has many members, this body has many members, and so it is, not with the church, with Christ. So it is with Christ. Paul is connecting the church's activity with the presence of Christ in the world. So this body image, this body of Christ image is not just a metaphor. He's extending it into some a mysterious realm where in fact we are the body of Christ the literal physical body of Christ in the world. It's, it's confusing a little bit. And if it confuses you, let it be, right? Let it, let it, let it um, stimulate your imagination. Christ is with us even in our body. Paul is emphasizing that we are one body. 
and not race or ethnicity, Jews and Gentiles, or, or status, slaves are free, make us one body. He's already showing that the main division, the main divisions are between ethnicity and social status. But they all drink of one spirit, he says. This isn't a reference to communion exactly, but it's more a reference to the spirits outpouring on the community, giving them all your gifts. All of this belongs to the spirit. Paul brings unity to the body by saying, all of you serve important roles. Really straightforward. The body has many members, the hands, the ears, the eyes, they're all essential parts of the body. You all have various gifts. They're important to the body, important to the common cause. But then then Paul hits the strong, the rich, kind of where it hurts. He goes on to share about the interdependence of the church. How we are independent while also relying on one another. We require one another and we're our own individuals in our own right. And he specifically mentions the weaker members of the body, but he names them as indispensable. Indispensable from the body, essential to the body. The rich Corinthians marginalize and ignore and shame these members, but these members are essential to the body. And he likens the weak members to, we would say, private parts on our body, furthering the idea that they're indispensable. And then makes a little quip, too. You clothe them with greater honor. You get the joke? You're clothing your body. That's what's happening there. It's kind of like a tongue-in-cheek kind of thing that he's doing. And if we think of a member as less honorable, well, then elevate the member even higher. Give them greater respect. And we do. And why do we do this? So that there is no division in the body, so there's no dissension in the body. Paul is saying when we up- uplift those who you don't respect, when we give greater honor to those who you think are inferior... We unite the church. That's how there is no, that's how you have a united church. When we oppress the marginalized, you divide the church. When we care for one another equally, which means the honored are dishonored, empowering the weak, we unite the body. Because when one suffers, we all suffer. That's the interdependence that we're talking about. And we feel that in our body, I hope. Right? When one part of you hurts, your whole body hurts. Paul is burdening the strong with accommodating the weak. That's how the body stays united. Our less respectable members are treated with greater respect, whereas our more respectable members don't need this. Special Attention to the marginalized. And the same not given to the so-called respectable. Reconciliation across the body leads to unity. Often, we're going to partake in the communion meal in a moment, when we approach the Lord's table, 
Sometimes the pastor or whomever will say, be, you have to be personally reconciled to everybody in the room. And I've had that experience actually myself. I was in this room, and I've had someone approach me and confess their sin or ask for forgiveness or even confront me in the moment. And that's kind of beautiful in some sense. But it's not just about that. Paul is asking for reconciliation between groups of people in the body across economic and racial lines, especially. And I'd say in the New Testament, it's especially across those two. And then now, these days, we have even more in the same kind of example. Paul's body image moves us to suffer with the body when it suffers. When one member suffers, we all suffer. And this radical inter- interdependence is crucial for us to understand as a church and as a society. Okay? My friend Danny is a disability activist. He's part of our congregation. shared a column with me about the pandemic and, and disability. Here's what the writer said. I want to share it with you. We should be framing this pandemic in terms of interdependence. This is the right political framing because it is the only moral and humane framing. Interdependence acknowledges that our survival is bound up together, that we are interconnected, and what we do impacts others. Interdependence is the only way out or the most pressing issues we face. If we do not understand that we are interdependent with the planet, we as a species will, will not survive. Connects to how we do the pandemic, what we do with the vaccines and wearing masks in public, even though you might not be at risk, you're protecting someone else, you're protecting someone who's immunocompromised or vulnerable, doesn't have the, can't get the vaccine. Interdependent, it's all connected. Climate change is the same way. Our actions affect the planet. We have to work together, we have to cooperate together, we have to have a common good. Same with race relations. Interconnected. You know, white supremacy doesn't benefit white people. It, it hurts white people, ultimately. It's a, it, it erodes us. Mass incarceration. Housing. All sorts of issues are connected to us. Unity in the body means justice for everybody. And we're modeling this as a church, or trying to, by uplifting the oppressed and the marginalized and the weak. That means that we need to consider that we have, who are our dishonored people? among us. How do we oppress them? How does that lead to dissension? That's the question we have to... Paul has an idea for what's happening. The weak and the strong, the rich and the poor, we still have that. But there's other ways too. Who is dishonored? Who is ignored? Who is marginalized? Who is, who is uh, not seen? Who do we need to elevate and give greater honor to? Same thing that the church in Corinth deals with. We're looking for unity here. Calling for honoring our most vulnerable is a call for unity in the church. Not the other way around. No one's safe until we all are. No one's honored until we all are. That's how we unify the body. And next week, Paul will show us the most excellent way to do that. Let's pray, and then we'll do some talk back, shall we? Lord, be with us. Help us, to, help us to feel unity within our body and within our collective body here. May we consider who is the dishonored among us and seek healing and reconciliation. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's 
Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at sirgolfhope.net.